You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In 1451, a Swiss farmer was concerned about unwanted trespassers in the ponds of his property, fearing that they would harm the much-needed population of salmon. He took his complaint to the bishop, who listened intently to the man's concerns and ordered that some of the trespassers be brought in to appear before the court. It wouldn't be practical to try to round all of them up for the court date, since the offenders were, in fact, leeches. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Europe has a surprisingly rich history of taking animals to court, which may be why the supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts chose it from the monthly topic poll, which is just one of the perks they get for supporting the show financially, in addition to things like early access, ad-free episodes, and the bonus podcast, Spot the Lie. But back to the topic at hand. According to author E.P. Evans in The Criminal Persecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, there were two types of animal trials, the Strafen and the Processa. The Strafen were for capital crimes which would warrant the death penalty, i.e. homicide, usually committed by pigs, horses, and other larger domesticated animals, which were presided over by a secular tribunal. Their processa were judicial proceedings in ecclesiastical courts, against vermin typically, like rats, mice, locusts, and weevils. The object being to expel the vermin from the orchards, vineyards, and croplands they were eating by means of exile, exorcism, or excommunication. In 1650, four sentences were handed down against a host of locusts in a Spanish abbey of Santa Maria, the last sentence calling for the locusts' excommunication and an order for them to leave the region in the next 14 hours. Bishop Alonso de Madrigal excommunicated another plague of locusts, condemning them to confinement in a cave, and a bishop in Cordoba excommunicated a flock of swallows that had set up shop inside their parish. These were, at best, Pyrrhic victories, just to make the people feel better. While Evans's book lists nearly 200 such cases, the animals in their processa cases never really seemed bothered by the ruling. Domestic animals barely listen to us. What do we expect the wild ones to do? Either way, it was thought to be important that the animals have their day in court. Why not just exterminate the offending critters? We're pretty good at that. Since even weevils and rats were considered God's creatures, the destruction they caused must also have been part of the plan, so destroying them would be an act against God's will. But if the animals were tried in a church court and excommunicated or otherwise condemned, then it was kind of okay. For example, in the 1480s, the Cardinal Bishop of Autun in France 
ruled against some slugs that were ruining the estate grounds under his purview. He ordered that, for three days, announcements be made to the slugs that they were to leave the area or be cursed. They didn't leave, so it was game on for the gardeners to get rid of them. On the purely legal side of things were the cases against livestock, typically for murder. Apparently, pigs are just mad for murder, at least when it comes to humans, and most cases involve them eating the victim whole or in part. This was a time when both animals and children might freely roam through fields and streets, and accidents did happen. Pigs may not eat everything as people think, but they will taste everything. And God help you if they find out you're made of meat. It reminds me of a bit from a Zora Neale Hurston story where the family sow gets into the kitchen where toddler Zora is alone and her mother panics, even though the sow was less interested in eating Mrs. Hurston's baby than the other way around. Evans describes one fairly typical case from 1379 in which two herds of swine were feeding together when suddenly three pigs became agitated and charged the swine master's son who died from his injuries. All of the pigs from both herds were tried and, quote, after due process of law, were condemned to death. On appeal, all but the three instigating piggies were later pardoned. The courts really do seem to have put effort to try animals in the same way they would humans, which is less woke than it sounds when you remember how readily the death sentence was handed out in those days. I've never tried to hang a pig, but given their incredibly muscular necks, I imagine it doesn't go easily. Also high-ranking in the crimes animals could be charged with was bestiality, although those cases were usually known to go in the animal's favor. Both the human and the animal might be put to death, but sometimes the case could be made that the animal was not at fault, as it didn't consent to participate in the act, so it wasn't punished. If they were convicted, the animal might actually be imprisoned with the human who got them in the mess in the first place. In those cases, the owner of the animal was charged for the animal's care and feeding as a sort of secondhand punishment. For as much as I'd like to say that animal trials are a brutish fossil symbolic of a decayed era gratefully forgotten, and I've got stickers for anyone who can identify that movie quote without Googling it, cases persistently pop up even in more recent times. In Tennessee in 1916, an elephant named Mary murdered her trainer, the strangest verse of the cell block tango ever, and was hanged with a crane. In Nigeria in 2009, a goat was arrested after a mob of vigilantes told police it was a shape-shifting car thief. No word on how that case turned out. Of all the creatures, critters, and creepy crawlies that plagued late medieval France, none could hold a candle to the weevil Rictes aritus. Not to be confused with the palmetto weevil, Rhynchophorus fabricius, the largest weevil species. You might say R. aratus is the lesser of two weevils. Meh, I'm working. The first complaint against the insects was made by a group of grape growers in 1545, which resulted in a proclamation for the public to atone for their sins in hopes that the weevils would leave. And it worked. A generation later, though, the weevils returned, and the town was forced to take them to court. 
Lawyer Antoine Filiol was appointed the Weevil's public defender. After all, it's hard to carry cash in a carapace, so they reasoned the Weevils wouldn't be able to pay for representation. Filiol argued that his clients had been placed on Earth by God, along with the food that they needed to survive. And it wasn't the bug's fault that that food just happened to belong to some local farmers. The prosecution, who I will picture being played by Sam Waterston and his glorious eyebrows, contended that animals are meant to be subordinate to man, and the weevils weren't towing the line. The villagers believed their sins brought the pests, but the pests were part of God's plan. But, but, humans are supposed to have dominion over animals, so they should be able to do with them as they darn well please. This back-and-forth stalemate is the central theological paradox of animal trials. Hmm, maybe I'll recast the DA as Linus Roach. He's got a real skill for nuance. Oh, Roach, I just got that joke I did on myself. The citizens of Saint-Julien, where this was happening, sought a compromise by providing the weevils with some land of their own, complete with a water supply, not far from the town, like planting a sacrificial garden for the deer and raccoons in the hopes that they'll stay out of your main garden. And it worked about as well. Filial, the weevil's attorney, argued that he couldn't accept this deal on behalf of his clients because the land was barren and wouldn't sustain them. Though the prosecution argued there were in fact plenty of trees and shrubbery. As is often the case with things that happened six centuries ago, the details kind of peter out. Disappointingly, before we find out what happened, though we do know that the trial lasted an astonishing eight months. But it's probably safe to assume that it went the way of similar trials, and the insects were told to take a hike. There is a group I wouldn't dismiss or be dismissive of, and they're all the people who take the time to write reviews for the podcast and the Your Brain on Facts book. Like Brooklyn, who says, love the podcast, love the book. Honestly, I thought it couldn't get better than her podcast, but she outdid herself. Thank you for that, Brooklyn, though I have to share credit with my editor, who picked out all of the graphics and illustrations and wrote the snarky captions underneath. I feel she and I really got on. Over on the podcast review side of things, we've got two from Apple Podcasts. Dr. Trixie says, We love the podcast and can't wait to read the book. If you're a collector of ideas, go to Moxie right now. We're filling in on the back episodes and decided to become Patreons so we won't miss a word. Her voice is soothing and melodic, and we love facts. We don't support many podcasts, but this one is a keeper. Thank you for sharing your perspective and bringing the world joy by supplying us with random, fascinating, usable, and unusual facts. I should have you write my ad copy. Guy Stefan says, My brain is full, but give me more. So far, I've only made it through half of the episodes, but I can't get enough. I also became a Patreon and was shocked to find such a small number of supporters. So step it up, you freeloaders. I swear, this is an actual review. Moxie obviously puts a lot of effort into this, so would a couple dollars a month kill you? Again, I can prove it. If you look on Apple Podcasts, you'll see this review. Thank you so much uh, on a number of levels for that, guy, Stefan. And I am just so humbled that people actually go through the back catalog that you think enough of what I do to give me so much of your time and brain power. 
and that is both thrilling and humbling. And if you started in the back catalog, thank you for ignoring the audio quality and welcome to the good stuff. If you want to hear your opinions read out loud, leave reviews for the podcast and the book. If you can't leave a review in your podcast listening app, leave one over at podchaser.com, the IMDb of podcasts. And if you're on your internet-connected device anyway, hop onto your social media and tag your other favorite podcasts. Tell them that they should submit a fact for the 150th episode of Your Brain on Facts, which is coming up in, as of the air date of this episode, just three weeks. I have yet to hear back from the Guinness World Records people as to whether they will consider my application for a record for most podcast guests on a single episode, but maybe they'll come through in the 11th hour. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Pope Gregory IX, who sat in the fancy chair from 1227 to 1241, was not a cat person, to put it mildly. He believed tubby tabbies, coy calicos, and pernicious Persians embodied the devil himself. Gregory based his theory on evidence, in giant inverted commas, from papal inquisitor, read professional torturer of people and writer down of screamed things, Conrad of Marburg, who documented evidence of people worshipping the devil and the devil's black cat. In 1233, Gregory issued the Vox in Rama, an official papal decree declaring that Satan was half-cat and sometimes took the form of an entire cat during satanic masses. Any color of cat, apparently, not just a black cat. If the Pope was against something, then the Catholics were against it too. And this was 300 years before Martin Luther's hammer or Henry VIII's divorce. So the Catholics meant basically everyone in Europe. In addition to sweeping cat hunts, be careful not to spoonerize that, and, I'm sorry to report, burnings, people began killing any cat that came onto their property to avoid being accused of being friendly with said cat. 
The feline population took such a hit from this, plus the bubonic plague-induced killings a century later, that there is still evidence of it today. Europe's current relatively small black cat population is a direct result of that breed being targeted specifically. Pope Gregory wasn't the only pontiff to want to throw down with Mother Nature's most around and find out species. Pope Innocent VIII came to power in the late 1400s, just in time for Western Europe's witch hunting craze. For more context on this time period, watch the Witch Smeller Persuivant episode of the first Blackadder series. If that's your first exposure to Blackadder, subsequent seasons are much better, but they don't have Brian Blessed in them, so... Because the powers that be dictated that a cat was a main identifier of a witch, the church officially excommunicated the entire species. Cat-hating, hunting, and burning were back in vogue. And it had more staying power than I'd like. Around the Belgian city of Ypres, nothing pleased the townsfolk more than throwing cats off the bell tower of the local church. With time, the killings became a ritual, taking place on Cat Wednesday in the second week of Lent. Which may be this week, actually. I'll have to double-check with my mom. This barbaric practice continued until 1817, when the last feline defenestration took place. That cat reportedly survived the fall and scampered off as fast as four legs could carry him, before subsequently being recaught. From then on until the First World War, Cat Wednesday was celebrated more civilly simply by ringing the church's bell. In 1938, a group of altar boys organized a sort of cat parade, each one carrying a toy cat. When they reached the church, then one of the boys climbed up the bell tower and threw down the toy cats. So close. But a better tradition was being born. The Festival of the Cats remained mostly a local thing until the 1950s, when folklorist parades became the new rage all over West Flanders. On the second Sunday of Lent in 1955, the first magnificent cat parade was organized, with 1,500 participants all dressed in gorgeous costumes. The city of Ypres has continued to celebrate the cat festival this way on the second Sunday of Lent every third year. Even today, the Vatican has strong opinions about pets. Pope Francis is concerned with the time, money, and energy that people put toward their fur babies. After food, clothing, and medicine, the fourth item is cosmetics and the fifth is pets, he said, referring to a study on where most people's income goes. That's serious. And though it's unlikely that history's most pro-natural environment Pope will encourage cat bonfires, he does suggest that we take a step back from the doggy ice cream and cat strollers. Well, Frankie, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to put my nine-month-old Rottweiler in a white sweater vest and tennis skirt for mixed doubles with the cats. Who says white people don't have culture? As Europe would learn during the bubonic plague, when you radically reduce the population of Felis catus, the population of Rattus ratus, and that is their scientific name, goes like mad. They eat crops, soil food stores, and, through no fault of their own, 
spread diseases. Those types of behaviors tend to make a species pretty unpopular, and humans have been trying to get rid of rats by hook or by crook for pretty much ever. In addition to the more typical corrective measures, people also went after the rats legally. Perhaps the best known of these curious proceedings not only spared the lives of the wee beasties, but made the reputation of distinguished lawyer Bartholomew Chesney, played by Colin Firth in the 1993 movie *The Hour of the Pig*, eventually propelling him to premier president of the Parliament of Aix in France. The country around Autun, here we are again, was intolerably, intransigently, and intractably infested with rats. And the citizens, perhaps out of ideas otherwise, appealed to the bishop to have the vermin excommunicated. In 1510, the episcopal court appointed Chesney as counsel for the rats. Undoubtedly related to his having recently, before that, written an article about trials of this kind, Chesney took the job seriously. Defense tactic one: the rats had not been properly summoned to appear. The defendant was not one particular rat, but all the rats in the region. Therefore, every single rat should be allowed to attend court and plead their case. Furthermore, the defendants were spread so far and wide that the summons made by the villagers could not possibly have reached them all. Whether it was the strength of the legal arguments, or maybe the judges had a soft spot for animals, but either way, the court agreed with Chesney's argument. They ordered that the matter should be adjourned and reheard after proper summons had been issued, deciding that preaching the summons from every last pulpit in the area should be sufficient to notify every last rat. The priests of the area did as the court instructed, but when the next hearing date rolled around, surprise, surprise, no rats. Chesney was ready for this. Of course, they haven't turned up, he argued. They're afraid for their lives. No defendant should be obliged to risk his or her life to come to court, and that applies to the rats too. After all, the rats would have to come out in the open, where cats and dogs would be waiting to pounce on them. Who could blame them for staying home? The judges agreed again and adjourned the case once more. And sadly, we run out of records here too on what happened at the third. And possibly final hearing, but Chesney had set a precedent that would revisit him thirty years later, when, in 1540, Chesney was president of the Parliament of Provence. There was an anti-Protestant campaign by French Catholics. A dozen Protestant inhabitants of the town of Merindol chose not to attend a court summons, and that court ordered the entire town of some eighty families. To be burned to the ground. Boy, that escalated quickly. However, the seigneur made a powerful speech to Chesney, citing the case that he had made on behalf of the rats. If rats should be given the opportunity to be heard safely, surely humans should too. Chesney was so moved by this plea, another good reason to always know your audience, that he not only called off the burning. But persuaded King Francis I to forestall the sentence indefinitely. Yay! Unfortunately, after Chesney died, his successor arranged for the sentence to be carried out. 
In a cruel twist, that successor offered the townsfolk safe passage to Germany, but reneged and annihilated the whole town. A lot of people would look at Chesney's defense of the rats as a waste of time and resources, but I prefer to look at it as a case of justice really being for all, or, as Horton said, a person's a person, no matter how small. But did it really happen? The main issue with our understanding of this strange practice, according to Sarah McDougall, associate professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, is the sources. The sources are 19th century scholars who didn't bother to give a whole lot of explicit information on where they found the stuff, she says. With a lot of the medieval ones, we know that some of them were either made up or they were textbook cases that were kind of a way to keep students from falling asleep. And an even stranger reasoning for a fake animal court story, McDougall says that one of the most famous cases of beasts on trial, the one involving the rats, completely made up just to defame the lawyer who supposedly defended the rats. Oh well, I now quote the movie Secondhand Lions. Sometimes the things that may or may not be true are the things a man needs to believe in the most. Speaking of unbelievable things, there is one excommunication of a cat, excommunicatchen, that deserves to be mentioned, but is a mere footnote in the wildly whimsical life of the man who both owned the cat and performed the excommunication. This is where being a good storyteller would really come in handy. The pure fact version of the story is, a priest excommunicated his cat for hunting, therefore doing work, on the Sabbath. But if you tell it like that, your podcast is only going to be five minutes long. If I were Mark Chrysler of The Constant, and God willing someday I will be, and everyone should be listening to The Constant, I would have been teasing you about the cat story for ten minutes already. So let me tell you about the priest, rather than the cat, and this may be the first time in my life I've ever chosen a human over a cat. The darling of Cornwall, even though he was from Plymouth, the man who invented the modern harvest festival, dressed in purple like he was cosplaying Prince at a go-go bordello concert, became addicted to morphine, believed birds were the thoughts of God, may have hanged a mouse if one author is to be believed, and spent his spare time pretending to be a mermaid. Robert Stephen Hawker was born the eldest of nine children in 1803 and was raised by his grandparents after age 10. At 19, while still in college, he married a woman 22 years his senior, who was thought to have financed the rest of his education. During their honeymoon, he became obsessed with Arthurian legend and inspired to write The Quest of the Sun Graal. He published what, I'm led to believe, was quite a popular poem, The Song of the Western Men, also known as Trelawney. Hawker published it anonymously in 1825, and it took no less than Charles Dickens to attest to its authorship. In 1834, the 31-year-old Hawker became the vicar of Morwenstow, near the town of Bude, and Cornwall, get at me on the social media if I'm mispronouncing those, where his real fame would begin, not for his writing or scholarship, but for his eccentricities, and deservedly so. Biographer Sabin Baring Gould wrote, One absurd hoax that he played on the superstitious people of Bude must not be omitted. 
At full moon in the July of 1825 or 26, he swam or rowed out to a rock at some little distance from the shore, plaited seaweed into a wig which he threw over his head so that it hung in lank streamers halfway down his back, enveloped his legs in an oilskin wrap, and, otherwise naked, sat on the rock, flashing the moonbeams about from a hand mirror. And sang and screamed until attention was arrested. Some people passing along the cliff heard and saw him, and ran into Bude, saying that a mermaid with a fish's tail was sitting on the rock, combing her hair and singing. A number of people ran out on the rocks and along the beach, and listened awestruck to the singing and disconsolate wailing of the mermaid. Presently she dived off the rock and disappeared. Next night, Crowds of people assembled to look out for the mermaid, and in due time she reappeared, and sent the moon flashing in their faces from her glass. Telescopes were brought to bear on her, but she sang on unmoved, braiding her tresses and uttering remarkable sounds, unlike the singing of mortal throats, which have practiced in Do Re Mi. This went on for several nights, the crowd growing greater. People arriving from Stratton, Kilkhampton, and all the villages round, till Robert Hawker got very hoarse from his nightly singing, and rather tired of sitting so long in the cold. He therefore wound up the performance one night with an unmistakable "God save the King," then plunged into the waves, and the mermaid never again revisited the sounding shores of Bude. It was that same biographer, Baring Gould. Who also suggested that Hawker hanged a mouse for breaking the Sabbath, but Baring Gould is known to be, as one source put it, economical with the truth. The tale was probably mixed up with another story that Hawker publicly excommunicated one of his cats for catching a mouse on the Sabbath. He had ten cats who often made up his congregation. His other pets included a highly intelligent pig named Jip. And a stag named Robin, who was in the habit of pinning visitors to the ground, despite Hawker declaring it to be tame, he was also known for his compassion, giving proper burials to sailors who washed up on the shore, and he aided in the rescue of the crew of the Martha Quail in 1863. Towards the end of his life, you could find Hawker in a little hut he made on the beach out of driftwood, in which he would write poetry. And you can still visit that hut if you're ever down Cornwall Way. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. William of Solaces, Bishop of Lausanne, wasn't about to let those leeches kill the farmer's salmon with impunity. He ordered them to confine themselves to a specific part of the pond. When the leeches proved to be contumacious or willfully disobedient, Solaces records in his memoirs, they were solemnly exorcised. And according to one contemporary source, it worked. The leeches began dying off until the ponds were free of them. Maybe there's something to this after all. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with what's new with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. 
Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.